Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. The NFL Conference Championships are here, and on the site, Robert Mays is writing about why this year's Chiefs are the team that Andy Reid has been waiting for, and Kevin Clark breaks down the era of the old dominant quarterback. Also, don't forget to check out all of our sports video coverage. We've got Master Sports with Roger Sherman, Slow News Day with Kevin Clark, and NBA Desktop with Jason Concepcion. You can check it all out on YouTube and TheRinger.com. Hey guys, I am Chris Ryan. I'm Jason Concepcion. And this is the audio podcast version of The Flat Circle, a True Detective after show that Jason and I do every Sunday after HBO's airing of True Detective Season 3. You can watch us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. But why not listen to us right now? What's up? I'm Chris Ryan. This is my co-investigator, Jason Concepcion. We are here. It's The Flat Circle, a True Detective after show. And we're talking about episode 3 of Season 3 of True Detective the big never, and this was an investigation episode. That's right. This was a lot of following clues, discovering new leads, and we're gonna break down this episode the way we break down all the episodes by asking the serious questions: who, what, when, where, and why. And let's get into what. Let's just start right off with the jump. what. So, in our three timelines again: 1980, 1990, and 2015. Let's start in 80. Investigators look at the note. They discover that the envelope was handwritten. So, a patchwork note with a handwritten envelope. Not criminal geniuses at work here. They yeah. also discover it could have been sent from anywhere. Yes. Good Samaritans step forward. Ozark Children's Outreach, a charity group funded by Hoyt Foods, puts out a reward for information in the case, and this leads to a flood of false tips. Yeah, and also it's worth noting that in some of the 1980s and 90s cases that Jason and I have been reading mm-hmm. about, true crime cases, you often see outside groups getting involved with mm-hmm. law enforcement, either you know, psychological therapists right. uh, coming involved, charity groups, religious groups who are trying to push a certain kind of agenda in the situation. So keep an eye on the children's outreach group. Wayne and Roland go to visit Hoyt Foods plant where the Ozark Children's Outreach offices are and just something seems pretty yeah, off we'll talk there. about that. We also learn that Lucy Purcell worked at the Hoyt food plant. The case kind of begins to sputter and Wayne decides to take a step back and really look at everything they have. And they take a fresh look at the Purcell kids, their story from that day, um, and realize something's something's not right. They said they were going to go play with a friend's puppy, but that's not the case. In fact, they were barely friends with this kid. So where were they going? What were they doing? This leads Wayne and Roland to go back and search the Purcell house again. They leave with several boxes of evidence, including some really uh, tantalizing handwritten notes, bunch of illustrations that, that Julie did, and a lot of D&D material from Will. On another search of the Devil's Den, Wayne discovers the place where Will and his mystery friend were playing D&D, and this also leads to his discovery of the place where Will was murdered, finds a pool of blood, he also finds a bag secreted away in a little hole in the rocks there, filled with toys, a calculator, and a bunch of uh, more D&D stuff. And one of the interesting things about this situation is that as this investigation kind of continues, you can feel in the 1980 timeline, the detectives start to circle inward around the family a little bit. The, one of the cards that uh, that Roland puts up on the detective's corkboard says, why lie? And I think yeah. it's the first time they start to become incredibly suspicious of what's really going on with the Purcell family outside of that initial meeting with Tom. So the search of the Devil's Den leads Wayne and Roland to a farmhouse that's hidden away up a lane. 
that's not on any of the service maps. Yeah. They go and visit the gentleman who lives there. And this guy's story is that actually, no, the cops have been here. They talked to me. A guy with a badge and a suit came and talked to me. But also, I have seen the kids. Um, they want to search his house. But the guy's like, no, you're going to have yeah, to Yeah, which goes back to like what, what one of the things that they talk about at the community meeting or right before or after is what, what matters to people out here is privacy and property. That's right. And these ideas that you can't really uh, just go and, and search anybody's house, that there's going to be a lot of uh, secrecy in this community uh, tied up in their identity of like, this is my land, this is my business, and this is my family. Also notable that none of the search logs say that this man was ever contacted, right. but he claims that he spoke to a, a police officer. They go back to the Purcell uh, residence, Wayne and, and Roland, and there they discover, while talking to them, a communion picture of Will that... Quite chilling, honestly. It's Will, rosary clasped in his hands, which are uh, together in prayer with his eyes closed, which is kind of a strange uh, thing to do for a communion picture, which just so happens to be the exact way that he was found in that cave in the Devil's Den. Which would suggest that whoever at least placed Will that way yes. has seen that picture before. That's right. Which was hidden away mm -hmm. or was present at his communion. Dun, dun, dun. So that, that definitely takes us some places that you, you talk about starting to look at the family. You're starting to talk, talk yes. about looking at people close to the Purcells, if not the Purcells themselves. We've already got Lucy's brother somewhere. That's right. Who knows I where mean, he yeah, is. Right. 1990, the investigation. And this is the investigation uh, by attorneys working for the person that was convicted of the crime in 1980 who whose identity we do not yet know, and they are working to overturn the conviction. They finally track down Roland, who's done well for himself. He's a lieutenant in the state police now, calling the shots. And an interesting thing to watch out for, we talked about in the, our first after show how, um, you know, you're just not sure with, uh, with Wayne's memory problems, how much of the stuff, how much of the mm -hmm. recollections are unreliable narrator, how much of, their, or how much of them are, are what actually happened. With the introduction of Roland into the 1990 timeline, we're suddenly seeing things now not from Wayne's perspective. And it's just an right. interesting wrinkle in the storytelling. Which in the first season of True Detective was how they did it from jump. That's right. They were, they were operating from these two interrogations. And that's we're following that model in this season, but we got Marty and Rust in the first episode. That's right. Whereas we've had to wait three episodes to start to get some kind of Roland outside the perspective of Wayne. So Roland, 1990, he basically tells them, hey, uh, Wayne was really rocking on that case. He's the guy who developed all this evidence. And he says specifically, you guys really uh, fucked a good detective there. Mm -hmm. Later, Amelia, still in the 1990 timeline, using her uh, talent for creating other characters, which she told Wayne about earlier, yeah. um, finesses the police department who are working on the Walgreens robbery um, by saying, hey, I'm, I'm an author. Uh, you know, I've been looking at this case for a while. My, my ex-husband is a detective. I just wanted to see what's going on. And they share with her information about the prints. They tell her, yes, we found prints. They were on shelving, not behind the counter. Still don't know if she was actually involved in the robbery. Later, uh, Roland goes to visit Tom Purcell, who's doing better now. and uh, Sober. Sober. Yeah. Tom knows about the prints. Roland confirms them. And we also discover that Lucy died two years prior, in 1988. Right. Um, and we find out— In Vegas. In Vegas. And then we see Wayne in his current circumstances. Yeah. He's working, uh, pushing papers, basically, for the police department. His career is effectively dead. Um, but then, 
Roland sends him a summons. He's putting together a new task force, wants Wayne to be involved. Now 2015. This timeline picks up right after uh, we saw Wayne standing in front of the former Purcell residence at Shoe Pick Lane, not knowing what had happened. He's gone to the neurologist to kind of uh, find out what's going on with this. And the neurologist says, well, they're looking at his CT scans. There's basically say there's nothing new. Henry, his son, is there with him. But while no one says this word, it's quite clear that Wayne is suffering from uh, the early stages, maybe not even the early stages, of Alzheimer's disease. And Wayne threatens to off himself uh, should Henry try to place him in a home. And it's clear that's why he's always got that gun near him. And it's interesting to think about how many different environments interrogations happen. Yeah. It's an interrogation in the doctor's office. They're trying to make him, they, you know, he's like, oh, you're playing gotcha now? Right, right. You know, and he feels like the doctor is telling him that his son loves him. He's like, I got that. Yeah, you know, yeah, he's yeah. like, thanks for letting me know thanks. about that. Yeah, thanks. The scenes between Amelia and Wayne in 90 yeah. feel like he is trying to basically entrap her into being like, Yes, I was flirting with these cops. Yes, she went, I to, love she went this. out to dinner. What I love working on this case. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of different environments in which one person is is in, interrogating someone else. Keep an eye on that. Wayne's interviews with Eliza continue. She questions him about the brown sedan, uh, driven stories say allegedly by a black man with a scar and a white woman. Seen, they were both seen lingering uh, near the Devil's Den around the time of the crime. This was stated by at least two witnesses. Henry, at this point, shuts the interview down for reasons that are kind of unclear. He and Eliza argue a little bit, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, later on in the episode, but you get the inkling that they know each other beyond just right. these sessions right. because they use each other's first name, and it just seems weirdly personal. In the first season, the cops who were interrogating Rust and Marty are a storytelling device. Yeah. In the third season, it seems like Eliza is gonna be more of a character that has a role in this story. That's right. Now, Wayne is spending hours and hours poring over his own files and, and Amelia's uh, research notes, recording himself so he doesn't forget what he finds in those files. And one night, while working into the late hours, he's got that gun on the desk in front of him, uh, he has a hallucination of Amelia sitting behind him talking about uh, Alternate timelines and Einstein's theory of Amelia. relativity. Yeah. Amelia. Speaking in riddles, one of the things she says to him is, did you mistake compulsion for freedom? Yes. Uh, Pulling that from the Russ Cole playbook. Straight from the, from the Russ Cole playbook. So that is the what. What about the who? The who, we just have tons of questions. Yeah. The who, if you ask who, if you're asking about, if you're asking that question, you just wind up going down all these rabbit holes. So let's just run through a bunch of them, okay? Yeah, so many who's. First thing I want to know is who gave Julie those notes? And is it possible at all that Julie wrote the notes herself? We don't know much about Julie. Yeah, we we know, know that she got popped, her fingerprints popped at a robbery at a pharmacy at Walgreens. We don't know, as Amelia seems to be very, very keen on finding out what side of the farm, like the, the, right. Where in the, the druggist table she was on. Was That's she right. stealing or was she just a witness who happened to be in Oklahoma? Okay, so... Who's writing the notes that say, it's all right, I'm always here, don't listen, I'll always keep you safe. And while obviously Julie was kidnapped and disappeared for many years, did that person keep their word? Yeah. Did I they mean, keep her safe? I, I will say, and this is like, you know, putting on my detective hat, this is an adult's writing, clearly. Yes. yes. Right? Yeah. Who played Dungeons and Dragons with Will in the woods? Yeah. Okay. Who gave Julie the dolls on Halloween? And is that the same person? Big question. 
Who from the state attorney's office okayed the reward for the Ozarks charity? Right. This is one of the things that happens when Wayne and Roland first discover yeah. uh, the, the reward. They, they go say to you visit should him. have coordinated with us. And he's like, yeah, I spoke to somebody about it. Who? Who was imitating a police officer and searching the farmhouse by the woods. And are those people working together? Right. Is there some sort of level of this investigation that's either A, trying to subvert the investigation, right. or B, is having a separate investigation outside of what Wayne and Roland are doing? Who is the woman who calls seeing Julie at a Huntsville snake farm? This is a really brief moment in the yeah. show, but I keep going back to it. Roland gets a call late at night at the, at the station, and there's a woman on the other line. They say they've had people saying, oh, the kids were abducted right. by Martians. All these They're getting more and more tips because Calling in because they want the reward. And a woman calls and says she's seen Julie on a farm in Huntsville surrounded by snakes in her dream. Now, you can go looking into the symbology of snakes and dreams and find pretty much any answer you want. But it seems like a really specific detail to just mm -hmm. throw in there without it having without it meaning something. What do you think it means, Chris? Well, I think it means that there's some kind of paranoia, mostly. But, you know, snakes can mean temptation. Yeah. They can mean trans like you're transcending your surroundings, you're shedding a skin. The most divisive question that we have coming Cer out of yeah, this episode among the is uh, flat circle staff. Who or what is in that duffel bag that Woodard takes out of the shed after he gets jumped by the townsfolk? Yeah. Because some of the folks who work on this show think it's a body. Certainly the show is eager to suggest that to you. On this it, show, yeah. And, and, and it feels yeah. like it is limp-ish. The, the way he carries it certainly would suggest that's the way you carry right. a certainly a child's body. Jason and I are more team first blood. Yeah, this is gonna be, uh, this is gonna be first blood. Who is the mystery man and woman in the brown snake? Oh, let's talk about this. So, in a lot of these cases. That's this guy's story. We first hear that with, with this gentleman who owns the, who lives in the farmhouse that was off the map. Right. Why is that farm off the map? Yeah, I mean, no, I know it's 1980, one. but like. Why is it not on the yeah, map? But it seems, it seems almost folkloric that they're going to this house that's not on a map. Yes. It's almost like something out of like Hansel and Gretel. 100%. And yes. then this guy, very casually, is just like, oh yeah, there was a, a black guy and a white woman in a brown, a nice brown sedan. I think, you know, it's, it, implication is that it's nicer than anything you would see around this area generally. Another thing to notice about his story, very detailed about the sedan and the people who were in it. He didn't see the faces, but he knows that it's a black man, white woman knows the color of the sedan, knows when it came, knows how many times he saw the kids in the sedan in the same general area. But when asked about who came and talked to you, all he can say is, white guy in a suit with a badge. Yeah. That's all he can say about it. Yeah. For a person that ostensibly came and talked to him for a while. Do we think that this brown sedan is some kind of red herring that people involved in a conspiracy are throwing it at the authorities. Well, and this is also, it speaks to some of the 1980s cases that Jason and I have been looking into, which not even necessarily as uh, analogs for what we're going to see on the right. show, as much as the circumstances surrounding those cases might have informed the writing. Yeah. And on a couple of them, you see there was a car. There right. was a car following these kids. There was a car that nobody recognized that we saw around the neighborhood. This mm -hmm. is way before Next Door. This is way before... Way before. Uh, you know, you basically were running your awareness of your neighborhood or off of the crime blotter that you would find in your local paper if you had a local paper. And there is a lot of game of telephone happening. Yeah. Oh, hey, did you see this? Did you see there was a car down the street? There was a car waiting for you outside. There are a couple of cases where this kind of car is like incredibly disturbing. The Johnny Gosh Yeah, the Johnny Gosh case. Um, you can uh, find out more about There's a documentary called uh, Who Took Johnny, which is on uh, Hulu, I believe. You can watch uh, more about this case. But there's, so there was, people saw 
Johnny was a, a paper boy. People saw him talking to a car that was idling, but then another car pulled up and people, eyewitnesses conflated the two, weren't sure which car talked to him and which car did what. We just don't know if that's what we're seeing here. We do think that there was a car because Wayne remembers specifically, especially in the later, the 2015 timeline, seeing car treads. Yeah. So we think that there's a car, but is it the car and it's that the car, and, and, and crucially, it's a car that Eliza tells Wayne in 2015 was seen leaving the area mm-hmm. on the day of their disappearance. Here's my biggest who, though. And I know that this could be me going down a, a dead please end. Go down the, please go down the dead end. Who is, who is this version of Amelia in Wayne's mind? Yeah, that's great. Because it doesn't quite seem like any version of Amelia that we've seen so far. Not a, from what we've seen, not a big uh, relativity person? No, no. But also punitive. Yeah. It seems like she's trying to punish Wayne for something. Or at least say that he's going to be held ultimately accountable for the things that he's done. Right. Are these things that only exist inside of Wayne's mind or are they things that the actual Amelia has seen? The reason why I want to make that distinction is because Wayne is aware of the sentence he's getting if he has Alzheimer's. Yeah. Even if his doctor won't say it, even if when he sees Amelia in his mind at the end of the episode, he won't say exactly what it is. He just says, not like this. The fact that he has that gun right there near him all the time and it's constantly reminding himself that if you need it, it's there, lets you know how seriously he takes this. Yeah. He's ready at the drop of a hat to to perhaps commit suicide. And we've already seen in True Detective seasons past, especially season one, the malleability of the human mind and what can what kind of landscape it is. And you remember in the first season, the famous monologue that Russ Cole gives about all your love, all your hate, all your pain, all your, all your memory. It's, it was all the same thing. It was a dream you had yeah. inside a locked room, a dream about being a person. Yeah. And that really resonated for me when I was watching Amelia sort of say that Wayne was going to have to pay. And he's like, I already lost Becca. Yeah. And she's like, not the way you think. That just opens up so many questions. What happened to Becca? Yep. What happened to Amelia? And who is this almost almost demonic Amelia yeah. that is showing herself to Wayne now? So I mean, I'm 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 really interested in that. I'm interested in the almost supernatural elements of it, yeah. but I'm also interested in the hardcore case elements of it. Why don't we take a few seconds though to talk a little bit about the context of what Let's of, do that. of this episode and where and when. And you know, seemingly it's just kind of like in there in the background. They mm-hmm. mention uh, Hoyt Foods. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a crucial moment in the episode where uh, Wayne loses Becca in a Walmart. And subtly, this episode of True Detective is a tale of two Arkansas businesses. That's right. Um, you don't have to look very deeply to find what I think Hoyt Foods is supposed to be, <laughs> which is Tyson Foods, which is a huge... Uh, chicken poultry company, Massive. vertically integrated, probably has hands in almost anything many Americans eat on a daily, weekly basis. Uh, Tyson started in Arkansas, in Springdale in 1935, just north of Fayetteville. So obviously would be a huge employer in the region. As we said, Lucy works there. Right, on the chicken line. It's kind of a throwaway line when Lucy's like, I could make better money getting tips at the sawhorse, That's I think, right. than I could working at Tyson. And it just got me starting to think about that sort of late capitalism and people are starting to run out of road on that American dream. That if you work at a factory, you could somehow support your family 
that you could make a better life for your yeah, kids. Yeah, once upon a time, the whole town would kind of spring up around the factory. Yeah. The housing would be specifically built for people that worked at the factory, and that's just, uh, that is ebbing quickly. And the biggest structure that we've seen, the physical structure that we've seen so far this year, are the towers at Hoyt Foods. But underneath those towers, when you look a little bit more closely, and this is the view from the charity organization, mm-hmm. we've got this sort of benefactor... He's like, oh, we're just here to help people with medical bills. Anybody who works for us, we take a special interest in. But this is like a weird scene to see. These guys, they're having a smoke break. It's just like, if this is where Lucy works, who's she working with? Right. And what's happening down there? And, so, they, and Roland and, and Wayne have the same idea. They ask for a list of all the employees of Hoyt Foods and when they started and when they quit. Yeah. Another Arkansas company is Walmart. And Walmart... You might have heard of it. Yeah, Walmart obviously is beginning its global domination by 1990. It's starting to show up everywhere. It started to show up on the coasts. And it changes the relationship I think Americans have with consumerism at the time, where you can get everything you need, but you almost... I mean, Wayne literally gets lost in the supermarket. Shout out to Joe Strummer. He is lost in the supermarket. He is in a moment of sheer terror in this place that's supposed to be you know, well, mass convenience. In 1980, the community gathers at the community center to hear news about this crime. By 1990, and certainly by 2015, the place the community gathers is increasingly places like Walmart. Absolutely. And you, yeah, right. The community center is gone by 1990, right? It's, or it's at least degraded. Right. Shouts uh, to my Stardew Valley. D- we're just seeing the overwhelming influence of commerce and business and labor, uh, and it's the relationship your life has mm-hmm. to those things. And it even made me feel, it, it, I, I thought they brought this up really interesting when, interestingly, when uh, West mentions that once we stopped working together, we just sort of stopped. We just sort of stopped. Yeah. That your life is, re- is completely drawing all its energy from its work. And you could make the same argument about Amelia and Wayne. Yes. That the case was the engine of their relationship. And that as their relationship to the case changed, it destroyed their relationship. Yeah, this show so far is a lot about um, these invisible structures which dominate our life. Commerce, business, the economy. Uh, with the kids, it's their secret lives. The secret lives that Will created in Dungeons and & Dragons and all these kind of invisible structures that we have no idea about that we're plumbing more and more. All that stuff is really, it's really fascinating when you start to think of uh, you know, these, these things that dominate our lives and the power they have over us. And when you really start to think about where does that power, where does that power originate? Where does it come from? Right. And who controls it and who benefits from it? There are a lot of conspiracies in True Detective. This conspiracy might be one that more people are familiar with than we actually thought in the beginning. Let's talk a little bit about some of the true crimes that uh, influenced Mm -hmm. this episode or that we were thinking about while watching this episode because we got a little bit more D&D. Oh, I love the D&D. A little more Dungeons and Dragons. You want to tell me a little bit about where Dungeons and Dragons was at in the 1980s? So by the time by the time of the 1980s Dungeons and Dragons was um, something between an underground phenomenon, a craze, but also something that was completely misunderstood by the mainstream. It was uh, shown at, probably it's uh, the biggest mainstream exposure it got was uh, in E.T., the extraterrestrial, when you see the kids sitting around, they're playing D&D. But because of the use of what one might consider devil imagery, devil fantasy imagery um, on the covers of the boxes, the fact that it didn't have a board 
There was nothing that you could look at that could give you an idea of like how it was played. And then the fact that the players around the board have to take on the personas of these characters that they're creating, those things led uh, religious conservatives, right-wing groups to view Dungeons and Dragons. And I have to say, I get where they're coming from as basically the most effective demonic Satan cult initiation device ever conceived. Yeah. Because what you've got is all these young kids playing a game that their parents can't understand, can't see, that has no materials, takes place all in their mind, right. and is about having them take on the persona of, occasionally, these evil people. And the game was uh, blamed for several tragic incidents over the course of the 1980s. In 1984, uh, two missing brothers, um, ages 12 and 16, were discovered under a train trestle in the woods where uh, they would- This all is in Colorado, would, right? This is in Colorado where they would play D&D. The younger brother had killed the older brother and shot himself. Um, the police explicitly blamed the game, although they, they eventually walked that back. So the D&D panic and the kind of like satanic cult panic that was happening at the same time, and also uh, the kind of missing children panic, which we'll, we'll talk, to, talk about in a bit um, probably, all that stuff kind of washed together as this kind of strange subculture that adults just, they just didn't understand it. There was a 60 Minutes episode uh, hosted by Ed Bradley about Dungeons and Dragons where he gave a lot of credence to this stuff. Yeah. Uh, like, um, it really did seem to the kind of squares and the adults who had never encountered role-playing games um, that this is a common denominator in all these tragic events and murders, suicides, school shootings. And you don't, you don't have to stretch too far to see how that same kind of impetus accompanies new things that enter the culture. Video games blamed for uh, a lot of uh, the ills of society. Yeah, eventually, yeah. So over time, this, like all generational panics, this kind of faded away. But it, you know what, just really quickly though, I do think that there was an interesting trajectory when you mm -hmm. were a kid back then of, I don't know what it was like for you, but I remember like years, whatever, like five to eight or nine, were like really fertile imaginative periods oh, yeah. where you would play and a lot of the things you were playing were narratives that you were weaving in real yeah. time where you're like, I'm, I'm the prince and you're the princess. Right. Or like, we're gonna play war and we'll be coming over this hill to get you, but we would make up our own armies and stuff like that. All that stuff happens and then like right around nine, basically sports comes in and wipes that out. As a boy, like, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Like, you basically wound up investing yourself in playing and thinking about sports all the time and maybe you got into school or you didn't. But there were kids in my class and, and, and there were kids growing up that never made that leap and that invested themselves deeper and oh, deeper yeah. and deeper into imaginative, creative worlds. And that was like an alienating thing for them. You know, that was like definitely like those kids wound up becoming outcasts to some extent. And they talk about Will in that way, where Will, they, Will like it keeps to himself, doesn't play sports, and is obviously like lying a little bit about his level of I, social interaction. Just the fact that he's going to a wooded area to play a game ostensibly with, perhaps with an adult, yeah. shows you that the, uh, the kid had a rich and complex private, you could call it secret life, that maybe held a darkness to it. So that part of this story is uh, quite germane um, in terms of things that really happened in the culture, especially during that decade with uh, Dungeons & Dragons role-playing games. The birth Absolutely. of role-playing games. We'll probably get more into cases surrounding the lengthy investigations into kidnap kids as the season develops. Mm -hmm. You want to talk a little bit about connections back to season one? 
Sure, let's talk about looking through kids' rooms, looking for evidence. A couple of int really interesting things found. So obviously the Yellow King is, is one of our, uh, is one of the totems of this series. Right, that's what we talked about the, from the is this it? Sorry. Uh, episode one, which was that Will had a Dungeons and Dragons module called the Forest of Lang, which was made specifically for the show. It doesn't exist in real life. And then a Lang is a thing that pops up a lot in H.P. Lovecraft's fiction. Yeah. It's a, a plateau that's patrolled essentially by the Yellow King. It's a, it, by a, a priest with a silken yellow face, and then it, it get, mutates over the course of years in different elements of Lovecraft's fiction to sort of arrive at a Yellow King-like place. So we, we are on alert for the Yellow King. So one of the things, one of the pieces of evidence that they pull out of the kids' rooms is this uh, illustration of a crown. We have yet to get any direct either in writing or recordings words from these kids or hear like what their games were like or what their fantasy worlds were like. But it'll be interesting to see if any of it comports with the kind of Yellow King mythos that we had in season one, right. such as with Dora Lang, when it was dis discovered when her ex-husband uh, told Rust that, uh, oh yeah, she was talking about... Uh, talking about Yellow King. Talking about becoming a nun. Yeah. And working for uh, a king. And what are nuns? Nuns marry God. That's right. Right, so they, there's almost a degree to which, I mean, especially in a lot of the satanic ritual abuse cases that you read about, was this paranoia about children being like offered up to dark force in almost like a marriage kind of way. Another thing that kind of came up, I don't know if this is a connection necessarily to uh, what we saw. So here's another drawing that was pulled out of uh, Julie's things. It's of a kitchen. Here's the kitchen of, of the gentleman in the secret farmhouse. Whose house is not on a map. Now, obviously there's certain obvious differences. Handles on the cabinets, for one. But the layout, pretty similar. Has Julie been in that kitchen? Right. Has Julie been in that kitchen? And also, I couldn't... I. I I kept stopping on this image of them walking up to the farmhouse with the uh, you know the the stone pillars of the of the wall kind of framing the door so that it looks like a castle. Was this part of like their inner imagination, like this place, right? Uh, specifically, like this. Is this a fortress? Is this a castle to them? Right. I don't know this. This for some reason this image just suggests that to me. I mean, you could also make the argument that this guy is lying then about a cop coming to visit him. If this guy has more oh, I would, to do with the case than we know, you could make the argument that he's trying to throw Hayes and West off the scent. My theory, the theory that I subscribe to at this point is that guy is lying, certainly about the cop, and probably about, if not the sedan, the people in the sedan. Yeah, it was just it, it, too weirdly detailed and. Two almost like perfectly crafted to throw people off the scent. This is a small town. Yeah. I mean, when Amelia and Wayne find each other, it's almost like they, you know, they share this unspoken they could have spotted thing. spotted each other from across they the They share city. this yeah, unspoken exactly. thing of being like the two outsiders, minorities in this predominantly white town. And now you're saying it's a black man and a white woman driving around a really nice car in this town. And yes, people saw them, but why didn't more people saw them? See yeah. them. Why didn't more people think it was strange? It just seems like too much of a cover story. And the way he can't remember anything about the cop, but he can remember everything about this car and these people, it just seems a little off to me. By episode three, we should be skeptical of almost what everybody is yes. saying, especially in my mind, Lucy Purcell. Yeah. She's no longer with us in, two, in 1990. So she, something transpires between 1980 and 1990 that means that she takes her own life. And the, her reactions 
to the toys mm-hmm. and to the photo album and her shock at the fact that the photo of of Will in the communion mirrors the photo of Will in his in his death pose is too eerie to not mean something. So here are the toys. Here are some of the toys that we see. Got a Han Solo. We've got a doctor's uh, setup, which is cons- extremely concerning. Right. Uh, here is also some of the dolls we saw were in the bag. Um, Roland and Wayne go to the Purcell house. They ask about the toys. Um, Tom is like, I've never seen these before. Right, and I buy them the toys. And I buy them the toys. Um, Lucy, much stranger answer. She says, I don't know, I don't remember. Right. Seeing the toys. That's not a no. She also tries to sort of catch a, a glimpse of Wayne when he's in Lucy's, Julie's room searching for stuff. Camera so she, really lingering on her. She is a little bit more suspicious this time around. She's the connection to Hoyt Foods. Hoyt Food bag is found in uh, Julie's room. Right. Um, something there that the she's hiding. Yeah. She kn- she, maybe she knew about these toys. Maybe it was her brother that bought the toys. Maybe that's who he, uh, Will was playing D&D with. We don't know. We haven't seen this guy. Um... Maybe she knows more about that specifically than she's, she's letting on. I'll leave it with this, which is just that right here at three, yeah. we're just out right away from touching distance of actually knowing anything in this case. That's and right. that actually is a major theme in this season and in the first season of True Detective. Uh, when Wayne's doctor refuses to call his disease Alzheimer's, but yeah. he says, we can say what it almost certainly is. It really reminded me of the poem that Amelia reads in the first episode of the Robert Penn Warren poem, Tell Me a Story. Make it a story of great distances and starlight. Starlight is a major image in Carcosa myth, the idea of black stars. The name of the story will be time, but you must not pronounce its name. This is also the inability to describe or name the Yellow King or the yeah. evil in the first season. This is a recurring theme in Pizzolatto. It's a recurring theme on the show, and it's the theme that we'll probably be watching for the most as we head into episode four. For my co-investigator, Jason Concepcion, I'm Chris Ryan. We'll be back with you next week on the Flat Circle, a True Detective After Show. Bye.